If you knew that you only had a few more days to live, what would you do during those last fleeting hours? Would you empty the bank account and fly to the Caribbean? Would you go on an insane shopping spree in New York City? Would you call your family and friends together so that you could experience your last few days just being surrounded by them? Would you take those moments to contact and make amends with people that you've offended along the way? Or would you just live life business as usual? If you only had a few days to live, what would you do? The truth of the matter is that none of us know with any level of certainty the exact day, time, or hour that we will die. Yet have you ever stopped to consider that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the very last week of his life, he knew that on Friday he was going to die. He knew that his mission was almost complete, for he had come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came in what you and I call Passion Week. He came and rode in triumphantly on Palm Sunday of Passover week. He knew that on Friday, those who were once crying out saying, He is King of kings and Lord of lords, will then say, Crucify Him. He knows He's about to die. And this morning, we bump into Jesus midweek. And what do we find Him doing? He's in the temple preaching the gospel. Apparently, there were a few more lessons to be taught, a few more insights and instructions that needed to be given. Apparently, Jesus just wanted to say one more time, this is who I am and this is why I've come. So this morning, we bump into Jesus and he gives one of those splendid stories One of those stories that tell us with vivid clarity that he is Christ. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, chapter 20. We'll begin at verse 9 and read through verse 19. Luke, chapter 20. We'll begin at verse 9. We'll read through verse 19. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third They wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. He on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus tells another one of those splendid stories. The parable I just read for you is recorded in three out of the four Gospels. We find it in Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke. By now you know that a parable is a compound Greek word, para meaning alongside, balo meaning to throw. So a parable is a story that's thrown alongside real life. It's a slice of everyday life that's used to communicate an eternal truth. And Jesus spoke this parable. It's a common scenario. It's one that would have been readily understood by everyone in the crowd of the first century. In fact, by their response, Luke makes it abundantly clear that they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Many times the parables are shrouded in mystery. It's hard to understand. You've got to connect the dots on your own. Oftentimes Jesus doesn't even describe or explain the story that he throws out to the crowd. But on this day, this is a story that everybody picked up. It's a story that everybody understood. Jesus paints it in very clear, vivid ways. He uses terms and analogies that would have been easily understood and comprehended. He said there was a wealthy man. He wanted to begin a new venture of planting a vineyard. He rented out the vineyard to some tenant farmers, and then he went away for a very long time. It's Matthew in his version that gives us even more detail describing the actions of the landowner. He says that the landowner built a wall around his vineyard. That he even dug a wine press. He built a watchtower. All of that is given to us to describe how the landowner gave all the provisions and all the protection needed so the vineyard could be secure and successful. This landowner had done everything that could be imaginable to ensure the success of the vineyard. He not only placed it on a choice hillside, but he put a wall around it to protect it from the wild animals he dug a wine press which made it that much better and easier to harvest the grapes and produce the much needed wine he even constructed a tower the tower served a couple of purposes number one it was housing for the tenant farmers and it also served as a watchtower so that any would-be thieves could be spotted in a far distance so they would not come in and take the profit of the vineyard. What the gospel writer tells us, what Jesus describes for us, is a landowner who pulls out all the stops. He thinks about every contingency. He knows exactly what he wants to do. And so he builds this beautiful, wonderful vineyard. Once again, in the first century, everybody in the crowd would have understood that a wealthy man being an absentee landowner was not that big of a deal. It wasn't that uncommon. For oftentimes, wealthy people would go on journeys. And if they went, they would always be gone for a long time because travel in the first century took a mighty long time. 
And so before he left, um, he gave over the day-to-day operations of the vineyard to tenant farmers. Everybody in the first century crowd would have understood it's implied in the story that those tenant farmers were hired under a contract with the landowner. That's how business was done in those days. The contract would have spelled out exactly what the landowner expected. All of the stipulations would have been there. The contract would have itemized all the things the landowner would provide up front. The tools, the equipment, the material, even the housing. He also would have stipulated and, uh, and spoken everything that he expected from the tenant farmers that at harvest time, this is how much you ought to produce. And it also would have been spelled out in the contract that any surplus of that profit would be given back to the tenant farmers. To be a tenant farmer at a vineyard of a, a wealthy landowner was a privilege in the first century. It was a glorious obligation It was one that um, there were great responsibilities but great rewards. Most people say that contracts in those days when it came to something like this was very fair, if not even gracious. It was a privilege to be asked by the landowner to be a tenant farmer at his vineyard. Once again, everybody knows that if a wealthy landowner is going to plant a vineyard, this is a long-term investment. This is not something that anybody does to get rich quick. It takes up to five years for a vineyard to produce enough sufficient grapes for a harvest. Up to five years. This is not a quick, easy uh, investment. And everybody knew that when Jesus set up the story this way, that uh, this is something that the landowner is doing, and he must be a patient guy. He must be one who has a great deal of forbearance, because in order for him to reap the harvest, it would take uh, at least four to five seasons. So when Jesus says that at harvest time, he sent one of his servants to go to get from the tenants some of the fruit of the vineyard. Everybody knew that four to five years had already passed. What the listeners fully expected was that uh, Jesus would say that when the servant of the landowner got there, that the tenant farmers graciously gave him a rich, bountiful harvest from the vineyard. But this is where Jesus throws a curveball. You know, I think Jesus would have made a splendid, masterful baseball pitcher. He knows how to throw a curveball that would leave everybody buckled at the knees. Jesus knows how to tell a story that flips the norms upside down and inside out and it catches you off guard. What Jesus says next, nobody expects. The servant of the landowner goes to the vineyard and the tenant farmers beat him. And send him away empty-handed. By their actions, what they're saying is that we have no intention of giving the master his due. They beat him. That's a Greek word that means to be punched in the face. It can also mean a body blow. But this guy was roughed up a bit. And he was sent on his way empty-handed. What's the landowner to do? Well, he sends a second servant. The second servant comes and the hostility intensifies. This one is shamefully treated. He too is beaten, whipped, and he goes away empty-handed. What's the landowner going to do now? 
he sends a third servant. This third servant comes. He fully expects to receive the harvest. Yet the tenant farmers take him and Luke says that they wounded him. That Greek word that's translated wounded is a Greek word from which we get the English derivative traumatized. They traumatized this poor guy. I mean, they whipped him, they traumatized him, they threw him out of the vineyard empty-handed. All the servants of the master were viciously abused, mistreated, maligned, sent away without the fruit. It's at this point that Jesus speaks for the landowner. And the landowner says, what shall I do? That's, pr that's a pretty silly question, isn't it? This landowner is living in the days of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. What shall I do? I'll tell you what you ought to do. You ought to get your little militia and go over there and take those tenants behind the proverbial woodshed and give them an old-fashioned tail whipping. That's what I would do. That's what you would do. But that's not what the landowner does. He is so patient. He's so gracious for no reason. The landowner says, I will send my son, my son whom I love. Certainly they'll respect him. It is now that we understand that the landowner is not just a wealthy man, but he's a father. He's a dad. He's got a son. And the way that Jesus verbalizes this when he says, my beloved son, the son whom I love, he speaks it in such a way it communicates the one and only son of the father. The landowner says, I'll send my beloved son. Which one is that? The only one I've got. I'll send my one beloved son. Surely they will respect him. When the tenant farmers look over the horizon and they see that it's the son of the landowner who's coming to the vineyard. The tenant farmers gather together and they develop a sinister plot. They think to themselves, the old man must be dead. Here's the only heir apparent to the vineyard. If we knock him off, the vineyard will be ours. You think to yourself, how in the world can they come to this convoluted conclusion? Well, the reason is because the Talmud taught that if there was any property and there was no heir apparent that ever showed up for three years, then those who occupied the land then became the owners of the land. They'd already been there for years. They can knock off the one and only son of the landowner. They knock him off, get him out of the picture, and then voila, the vineyard is theirs. Theirs to manage because now it's getting lucrative. Now it's producing a harvest. Now they can pad their own pockets with everything. So they think to themselves, we will take care of that one and only son, the only rightful heir to the inheritance of this vineyard. So they seize the son. They treat him more brutally than they treated any of the servants before of the landowner. They took him outside of the vineyard, asked to not get any of his blood on the grapes and defile the vineyard. And once outside the vineyard, they viciously slaughtered the son. What then shall the landowner do? 
It's in Matthew's version of the story that uh, Matthew records a response from the crowd. Matthew's the only one who records a response from the crowd. And you know what the crowd says when Jesus gets to that point and he says, what shall the landowner do? The crowd responds, he shall bring those wretched ones to a wretched end. And he shall give the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop. They're understanding exactly what the landowner ought to do. And in our version of Luke's story, Luke affirms the response of the crowd for Jesus says he will come and kill the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. And when the crowd heard this, they exclaimed, may this never be. When the crowd heard this, when Luke writes the word heard, he, he uses the, the word for hearing that means to hear with understanding. It's not just information going in one ear and out the other. It's not just that the crowd is entertained by a well-spun story. No, they are locked and loaded. They're on the edge of their seats. They are listening with comprehension. This is what every parent dreams when he or she speaks to their children. I want you to listen with understanding. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. This is what every wife loves to have from her husband. Listen with understanding. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. I thought I'd get an amen. I mean, this is the listening that's going on in this story, in this moment. They hear with comprehension. They hear with understanding. And they exclaim, may this never be. I wonder this morning, what do they understand? What is the crowd picking up that Jesus is putting down? What do they hear with comprehension? What do they understand? How is this different than other stories that would go whoop right over their heads? What do they understand in this story? Well, there are a few things that are quite obvious to them that might escape our understanding. For starters, they knew that the landowner was God. They also knew that the vineyard would have been Israel, or even more specifically, the divine inheritance known as the kingdom of God. They also would have understood that the tenant farmers, those who have been entrusted with the vineyard, that's the people of Israel, that's the priests and the Pharisees, the parishioners, even the everyday common folks. The reason they would have known this was because the imagery of Israel being a vineyard is common in Old Testament theology. Many of the prophets would speak about Israel being the vineyard of God Almighty. One of the greatest places that it's described is in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. It's there that the prophet says, I, I will sing a song for the one I love about his vineyard, for my beloved one planted a vineyard on the choicest of hillsides. The one that I love, Isaiah says, of course he's speaking of God. The one that I love planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it. He dug a wine press. He built a watchtower. Sound familiar? 
He, he did all of this for his vineyard. And later in Isaiah chapter 5, it says that the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. You stop and think about it. The landowner, God, had given everything to Israel so that Israel could be the caretaker of truth. So that Israel could be the proclaimer of the gospel. Just like the landowner provided everything for the vineyard to succeed, so God has provided everything for Israel to succeed. Think of all the things, all the tools, all the material, all the provision that God had given to Israel all throughout the years. Israel had the law of God, the word of God, the blessing of God, the promises of God, the protection of God. God himself etched his stipulations on tablets of stone known as the Ten Commandments. They had the very word of God. No other deity ever spoke to his people like God spoke to Israel. They had the promises of the Lord. They knew that uh, obedience would bring blessing and disobedience would bring curses. God spelled it out because he said, I don't want you to misconstrue who I am or what I expect. God is the landowner and he clearly told his people, Israel, this is how I want you to live. The people understood that they were the caretakers of God's truth. They were to be proclaimers of what you and I call the gospel. God had selected Israel. What does that mean to be God's chosen people? It simply means that God said, I'm going to bring salvation to the world. I can use any tool on my uh, workbench, any nation I can pick up and use. I choose the nation of Israel and through Israel, I will bring Christ Messiah. And that's what Israel was expected to be, a fruit-bearing nation, a fruit-bearing vineyard for the Lord. The crowd understood that. You know what Isaiah said? Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 5 that God has been looking for good fruit, but the vineyard only yielded bad grapes. So what was God to do? He sent prophet after prophet, man of God after man of God, and what did those prophets proclaim? They proclaimed to Israel, get back on the straight and narrow. Here is our God who is gracious and patient. This is what God expects. This is what God wants. Let us have revival where we have a renewed spirit unto the Lord. Let us follow him. Let us produce fruit of righteousness and obedience, holiness and purity. And time and time again, prophets came. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah. Zechariah, just to name a few. And one by one, how are those prophets treated? Just like the servants in this story. They were maligned, mistreated, persecuted, executed. History tells us Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. Micah was punched in the face. Zechariah was executed at the temple. All of these prophets, whether you go from Moses to John the Baptist, all of them mistreated, misunderstood, abused. By who? By the very people 
They were sent to retrieve. What the tenant farmers did to the servants of the landowners, so the forefathers of Israel had done to all the prophets. In the days of Jesus, the, the Jewish people understood that their forefathers had mistreated the prophets. In fact, on numerous occasions they would say, had we been there, we would not have treated Jeremiah that way. We would not have treated Isaiah that way. We would not have treated the prophets that way. You know what Jesus says? In Greek fashion, he says, baloney. <laughs> he says, you hypocrites, you build up their cemeteries and their graveyards, and yet you have executed all of God's prophets, including John the Baptist. Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy. And of course, when the people hear this story, they understand what Jesus is saying. They know that Jesus is identifying himself as the son of the landowner. You know this because in the story of Jesus that he tells on this particular day, um, the servants don't debate the identity of the son, do they? The son of the landowner comes and they say, they do not say, who is that? They say, that's the heir apparent. We know clearly who that is. That's the only begotten of the father. That, that's the only son of the landowner. Let's knock him off and this will be our. They know the identity of Jesus. In the story, they knew the identity of the son. And the people in the crowd that day had a sneaking suspicion of who Jesus just might be. Some of them feared that he just might be exactly who he claimed to be. If you listen to Jesus, you've you got to walk away understanding that, that Jesus knew himself to be son of God. I mean, when he says things like, I am the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one, that's a pretty God statement. And when he uses the phrase, I am, which was off limits to anybody to speak, and yet Jesus used it over and over and over and over again. He uses a vocabulary that's like burning bush vocabulary that only God is supposed to speak. And Jesus has the audacity to say, I am resurrection and life. I am bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You listen to Jesus, just take his word at face value He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be son of God. He's claiming to be the one and only. In fact, the terminology Jesus uses when he describes the son of the landowner, my beloved son, it's very reminiscent of what God the Father spoke at the baptism of Jesus, also at the mountain of transfiguration. For on both occasions, when Jesus is there, God the Father speaks from heaven. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's no confusion on the identity of Jesus. So what do you do with somebody who claims to be Christ? Either you believe him or you execute him. And so the tenant farmers took the son outside of the vineyard, and Jesus knew that in a few days, some of these same people would take him outside of Jerusalem, and they would slaughter him. There are a lot of theologians who press the imagery that just as 
the son of the master was taken outside the vineyard. So Jesus was taken outside of the city wall of Jerusalem to be executed. And while there's a correlation there, don't press it too far because nowhere is the vineyard compared to the city of Jerusalem. But there's still a connection. Jesus is speaking what's about to take place. He knows that he came to die on Friday. When the crowd heard this, they said, may this never be. What are they responding to? What, what, what are they saying, may this never be? What is the this? Well, they're not saying, may the son never be crucified. They're not saying, may the son of the master never be taken outside of the, of the wall and there slaughtered and executed. They're not saying that. What they're saying is, may this vineyard never be taken from us. May this never be. May this inheritance never leave our clutches. May this never be. May God's blessing never be removed from us. And Jesus is clearly telling them that uh, they are going to take the son, take him outside and crucify him. And, and then the the vineyard will be taken from them and given to others. And they say, may that never happen. Yet that is what happened, right? The son was taken outside of the city wall and he was slaughtered. And the vineyard was given to others. Who are the others? Well, um, it's not as simple as you may think. It's not as simple as saying that the vineyard was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. It's not as simple as saying, well, the vineyard was taken from Israel and given to the church. No, who are the others? The others are the followers of Jesus. Because there are believing Jews and there are believing Gentiles. And there are believers in every nation. There are believers in Israel. There are believers in Peru. There are believers in Pakistan. There are believers in the great United States of America. And God promises that on that last great day when all of his kingdom comes and worships the Lord, who will be there? Representatives of every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every tongue. Followers of Jesus Christ. The one thing that we will all have in common when we stand before the throne of the Lord is that we will say we are there by faith alone in Christ alone. So the others represent those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who have said we identify with the Son of God. We identify with the one who is the giver of the inheritance. For we identify that he is a sovereign savior of the universe. We have pledged our allegiance unto him. And we've given him our lives so that we can be caretakers of God's truth. So we can be proclaimers of the gospel. So we can be individuals who produce fruit. Fruit of righteousness. Fruit of holiness. Fruit of obedience. Fruit, fruit of purity in our lives we are the caretakers of God's gospel it has been given unto followers of Christ they understand what Jesus is saying they understand he's claiming that those who follow him will be given the inheritance and they say may this never be why because we think you're a phony we don't think you're the Messiah. We don't think, we think you're kooky and that you've lost it. May it never be what you're saying. And then only in Luke's gospel, Jesus looks directly at them. He stares them down with a sovereign stare. 
He locks eyes with them and he says, then what is the meaning of that which is written? And he quotes Psalm 118, that the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. I know your translation may say capstone, and that's a suitable translation, but I think the better one is a cornerstone. You say capstone, cornerstone, cornerstone, capstone, what's the difference? Well, I think what Jesus is saying is that he is implying that he is cornerstone. He shifts the analogy a bit. Had he just ended the teaching with the death of the son of the master, that would be a tragic story indeed. But you and I know that's not the end of the story. Because even though Jesus was crucified, on the third day he was raised from the dead. And by that he is declared cornerstone. You know what a cornerstone is? It, it is a stone that demands perfection. It's a stone that, that has to be perfect in every way. It is the stone that sets the symmetry of a building. It's the cornerstone. And you know that stones in those days were cut by hand. Can you imagine the number of stones that were thrown away, passed over, shoved aside because of some flaw or imperfection? Maybe they cut it wrong. Maybe it had some defect. And so they would push it away and shove it away and say, that cannot be cornerstone. That cannot be the cornerstone for whatever building we're building. So you had to have a perfect cornerstone. The cornerstone had to be perfect at the bottom to secure a solid level foundation. The cornerstone had to be perfect on its sides to ensure that the building as it was being raised would be perpendicular to the ground. The cornerstone had to be perfect on top so that as the building was built, it would not lean one way or the other. Cornerstone had to be perfect. And Jesus is claiming that the sun is the stone. That sun that was taken outside and slaughtered, that sun is Perfect. That son is cornerstone. He's talking about himself. He is cornerstone. He is perfection. And many of the people throughout the ages have overlooked Jesus, shoved him aside, pushed him away, and they have said, we don't believe you. We don't like you. You're flawed. We don't love you. We don't think you are Messiah. We don't think you're Christ's material. Yet Jesus says the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. So that means for you and me, that we declare that Jesus is the crux of Christianity. Jesus is the hinge of our holiness. Jesus is the rebarb of our righteousness. Jesus is the essence of eternity. Jesus is the centerpiece of all civilization. Jesus is cornerstone. When you and I make the declaration, Jesus is Christ, we are declaring the greatest theological statement that could ever be written for. We are declaring he is perfect. He is Messiah. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is cornerstone. When God declares Jesus the Christ, he's exhausting even his vocabulary. I'm telling you this today 
way because Jesus is cornerstone. You can't think too much about Jesus. You can't think too much of Jesus. You can't make too much of him. You can't love Jesus too much. You can't worship Jesus too much. You can't talk about Jesus too much. You can't talk to Jesus too much. You can't serve Jesus too much. You can't work for Jesus too much. Why? Because he is cornerstone. Jesus is declaring to the crowd, I, the one you're about to crucify, I am cornerstone. I am perfection. You can build your life upon Christ because God has built the kingdom upon Christ. You can build everything in your life upon the strong, sturdy cornerstone because God has selected Jesus to be the cornerstone of all of his eternal kingdom of God. That's why Jesus follows this up by saying, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But whoever the stone falls upon will be crushed. Jesus is saying of himself that he is a wrecking ball. And you're on a crash collision course with a wrecking ball. His name, Jesus the Christ. Either you can receive him and be invited into his vineyard to bear fruit and be a custodian and caretaker of the truth of God, or you can reject him, and if you reject him, you will be broken and crushed to pieces. Jesus understands he's a wrecking ball, and he will wreck those who reject him. There was a rabbinical saying in the days of Jesus, the rabbinical saying was something like this, if a pot is smashed against a stone, it'll break the pot. If a stone is smashed against a pot, it'll still break the pot. Either way, the pot will be broken and the stone is unbreakable. Jesus picks up on the rabbinical statement and he is saying, I am that irresistible, irreplaceable, unbreakable cornerstone. So he's a couple of days from death. And he says to the crowd, you've got a decision to make. You can be a follower of me. You, you, can, you can receive me. You can come into my vineyard. You can receive my inheritance. You can uh, be one who produces fruit of righteousness and holiness and obedience in your life. Because God has given his word, his work, his will unto you. You can come and follow. Or you can reject the cornerstone. And if you do, that cornerstone will crush you. That, that cornerstone will break you to pieces. It's your decision, if you want to call it a decision. It's your choice, if, if it's an even choice. Either have the inheritance of God or be crushed by the cornerstone. Which one is it? Now, you would think that everybody would choose Jesus, right? I mean, with that layout... Come on. I mean, you offer the invitation. Everybody should flood. What do the Pharisees say in our story? They knew he was talking about them. 
they thought to themselves, he's so arrogant. He's so brash. We need to arrest him. You know, for 2,000 years, people have been accepting Jesus or trying to arrest him and put him in his place. Have you ever tried to arrest a wrecking ball? You ever tried to stop a wrecking ball? You can't do it. So I came this morning just to tell you my story. I came this morning just to tell you my testimony, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Church, I want to tell you, Christ is cornerstone. Christ is perfect. Christ is all that you need today. Receive him. Be invited into his vineyard. Produce fruits of righteous holiness and obedience unto your life. And may God be pleased with his church both now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we bow before you. We hear your invitation. I don't extend it. You do. Lord Jesus, you've extended the invitation to your people. Just because we're in a church building doesn't guarantee that we are followers of Christ. You are calling us to receive you on your terms. Your perfect cornerstone. You invite us into your work. You expect us to produce fruit. Oh, Father, help us this day to hear your word and respond in obedience. Lord, may there not be a person listening to my voice who rejects you, who says somehow you don't know what you're talking about. Somehow you're a phony or a fake. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that people will not collide with the wrecking ball but that people will receive Christ through repentance. Have your way in this invitation moment in Jesus' name. Amen.